Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, you've been speaking to several different audiences around the country recently, and one of the presentations you said you enjoy giving is entitled Astronomy and the Bible. Mm -hmm. Now, astronomy is not your field of expertise. You're more of a biologist, a life science person. Right. So what is it about astronomy that you enjoy so much? Well, Scott, what gives me the most enjoyment when considering astronomy is the Bible part of it. My takeaway message in the astronomy and the Bible presentation is how great God is and how fascinatingly accurate the biblical statements are that relate to what we call astronomy. God's creative works in the heavens profoundly reveal his wisdom and power and glory. And that's not just what you say, that's what Scripture says. Oh, well said. Absolutely. And I think I know a Scripture passage you're referring to. What is it? Psalm 19, 1. Hmm. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Amen. And the second verse goes on to say, Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. The knowledge being displayed is the knowledge of the Creator who placed the sun, moon, and stars in space back on the fourth day of creation. And so, since the Bible even confirms that the astronomical work of the Creator declares His glory, I do indeed enjoy thinking about the Lord's work in space. Now, that doesn't mean I don't love talking about the biology side of creation. And given my experience— I find considerably more detail that reveals the wisdom and glory of the Creator in the molecules and membranes of cells, or by the information and coordination in genetic systems of living organisms, than I do in galaxies or in our solar system orbiting our sun. But the fact is, the Bible points more to God's testimony in the heavens than in the organisms. And I think there's a good reason for that. Really? What would that be? Well, let's face it. Until the invention of the microscope a little more than 400 years ago, men knew nothing of the world of cells. And it still took centuries after that to develop microscopes that could see the detailed parts of a cell. Even in Darwin's day, the mid-1800s, he referred to cells as the simple cell. Mm. <laughs> so it's been less than 200 years that we have been able to observe the complexities and wonders involved in what produces life. But the stars? Man has always been able to observe the stars, and he has always been able to perceive, even though we could not measure it, that the expanse was immense and awesome and was a reflection of the Creator behind it. So it would make sense that the Lord would point to what people could observe all down through the ages as evidence for His existence and greatness, and not so much to what man has been able to discover only recently in human history. Well, that's what I think. But on the other hand, and I know I'm biased, I think His greatest, most artistic and wondrous work is definitely in the molecules, the other end of the size spectrum. Well, as you have admitted, there's a greater emphasis in the Bible on God's testimony in the stars. So there's a wealth of subjects from the field of astronomy that you could address in your astronomy and the Bible presentation. So what ones do you talk about? Well, I especially enjoy describing how perfectly the sun, moon, and even the stars are placed in relation to the earth so it can sustain life. 
and also lets us see the universe of stars and galaxies around us. Scott, you know we here on Earth are extremely fortunate to be in the Goldilocks zone. Uh, the Goldilocks zone? <laughs> well, that sounds interesting. In fact, it sounds just right. But what are you talking about? <laughs> well, it's actually precisely what you just said. It's just right. You remember the story of Goldilocks? Yep. She enters the bear's house and finds porridge on the table. One bowl was too hot, one bowl was too cold, and one was just right. Then she finds three beds. One was too hard and one was too soft, and the third was just right. Well, the path the Earth takes as it orbits around the sun is crucial for the survival of all life on the Earth. And that path, which we call the orbit, doesn't bring the Earth too close or too far away from the sun. The orbit is just right, almost perfectly circular. Therefore, preventing the Earth, and in particular the water on Earth, from getting too hot or vaporizing or getting too cold or totally freezing. Because if all the water vaporized or froze on Earth, life would cease to exist. Not to mention you'd have trouble with your porridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when God placed the sun where he did on day four of creation, he not only put it at just the right distance, he caused the Earth's orbit to be in and remain in the Goldilocks zone. And to an evolutionist, that fact is a wildly lucky accident. Yep. There's no other explanation for it when you credit random collisions of gas and matter for the production of our sun and the planets orbiting it. But Scott, that's not all. The moon is also in the Goldilocks zone as it orbits the Earth. Ah, Goldilocks squared. <laughs> so how is the moon's position just right? Well, again, just like the Earth around the sun, the moon's orbit is just the right distance from the Earth to produce a very stable binary system, and its orbit, like the Earth's around the sun, is almost a perfect circle. So it doesn't sweep in real close or way out away from the Earth. And because of those two variables, the stable gravitational attraction between the moon and the Earth causes the oceans to bulge out just a little. And since the Earth spins under the moon while it pulls on the oceans, that bulge sweeps around the planet, producing the daily tides. And without the tides, there would be no life on Earth. Do you know why, Scott? I think it's because the tides stir up the water, especially along the shorelines, and aerate the water, dissolving oxygen and carbon dioxide in the water, which is necessary for all the aquatic organisms to live. Exactly. Fish need oxygen to breathe. Plankton and other water plants need carbon dioxide to carry out photosynthesis. Without the aeration of the waters in the oceans caused by the tides, the world would be encompassed by a stagnant cesspool of goo. Nothing could live in it. Which is pretty ironic when you realize that the evolutionary explanation for the origin of life on the Earth is that living organisms formed by chance in pools of goo. <laughs> A <laughs> good observation. <laughs> Thank you. That has been the evolutionary proposal for a long time. Yep. Although, with the increase in understanding, from Darwin's simple cell to the incomprehensible complexity we now observe in all living organisms, 
more and more scientists who believe in the theory of evolution are questioning the idea that life evolved from non-life on Earth. And they're proposing that pre-existing life came to Earth from outer space. That's right, on a meteorite or a comet. But what it boils down to is, the more we observe God's handiwork in the molecules, the more his testimony from the stars is verified. There's simply no escape. And so, using the heavens to establish, we might say, his credentials, Isaiah 40.22 says, It is he who sits above the vault or curve of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Then read verse 25, Scott. To whom then will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. And even though those who lived in Isaiah's day didn't have the technology we have today, which enables us to observe not only that there are billions of stars in our galaxy, but there are billions of galaxies each having billions of stars in them, the people living millennia ago knew the host of heaven was a vast, uncountable number, and the Creator who made them was indescribably great and powerful. Which brings me to the other subject in astronomy that I so enjoy talking about when presenting astronomy and the Bible. That would be the number of stars in the universe? Well, that's really cool to think about, especially when you read how the Creator refers to His making 200 billion times 200 billion stars on day four of creation this (laughs) way. Genesis 1 verse 16 says simply, He made the stars also. Oh, that's all. (laughs) (laughs) But the other subject in astronomy I especially enjoy talking about is the fact that we can see all those stars. Everyone on Earth with the naked eye can see that expanse of stars in space. And that, too, according to an evolutionary worldview, is a wild stroke of luck. Because just as the Earth around the sun and the moon around the Earth is— Our solar system is in the Goldilocks zone of our galaxy, enabling not only life to exist on Earth, but enabling life on Earth, in particular man, to see the universe of stars and galaxies out in space. Remember, the creation account in Genesis 1 reveals that God placed the sun, moon, and stars in the expanse of space around the Earth. Well, we've been discussing how perfectly he did that placement. And one more variable related to where he placed the stars is where our solar system is in our galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy. Scott, why do you think it's called the Milky Way galaxy? Well, I suppose because when you look up into the heavens, you can see what looks like a white cloud stretching across the sky. But when you look more carefully, you realize it's not a cloud. It's a vast throng of stars that looks like a stream of milk through the sky. Yes, a vast throng of stars. And what you're seeing is the dense collection of stars through the plane of our spiral galaxy. Its shape is flat with arms extending from the middle like a pinwheel. Now, if our solar system was near the center of our galaxy, one, there would be so much radiation, no life could exist. Hmm. And two, there would be so much light from the density of stars, you would see nothing in the sky but dazzling light, no darkness, no stars. 
And also, if our solar system was out in one of the arms of the Milky Way, there would be too much cosmic dust in the space around us to see anything in space, but maybe our sun and moon and maybe some of the planets. But dust would reflect the light from our sun and cause too much ambient light to see beyond our solar system. In other words, it would be like cosmic light pollution. Yes, but we're not in the center of the Milky Way or in one of the arms. Our solar system is on the edge of one of the arms, and so we are not in the dangerous interior of the galaxy and not engulfed in space dust that clouds our vision. When we look sideways through the plane of the spiral, we can see so many stars it looks like a cloud, a Milky Way. But we can also look out perpendicular to the vast, dense throng of stars in the plane of our galaxy and see out beyond it at what may look like more stars as pinpoints of light but which are actually whole galaxies themselves. Wow. The Creator formed the universe around this tiny planet of ours so that we could live on it and witness His power and glory. And thus, with the angelic host proclaim, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. And that's not what I say, that's what Scripture says.